Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And this month, as I am each and every month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Craig Joseph. He's the Chief Medical Officer at Nordic Consulting Partners. Craig, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So uh, this is July's News You Can Use, July 2023. It's uh, the middle of summer. We're under a massive heat wave, or at least uh, some people are, it seems, uh, spreading all over the place. And, you know, there's certainly been some things going on. I think um, we've kicked off a lot of the recent episodes talking about AI and uh, large language models. And ChatGPT um, hit the news just recently. We saw that with a uh, uh, JAMA uh, internal medicine uh, report that talked about the comparison of um, HPIs, history of pre present illness summaries, generated by chatbots, and then generated by senior internal medicine residents, who, of course, have lots of time to be able to do that, right? <laughs> They've got nothing better to do. Let's be <laughs> and honest. they're really excited about it, of course. So I, how did it do? Um, you know, I, I, I'll summarize it, uh, as I think we've summarized many things with uh, with generative AI, it's all about the prompt, baby. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Prompt so engineering. They, uh, um, yeah. So it was a very interesting study. Basically, they made up an interview of a patient, and so, hey, what brings you in? Oh, I've got this pain here, and then they ask, you know, some questions, and the patient answers those questions, and then from that, you're supposed to generate. If you were a human, you would generate a history of present illness, HPI. And um, they wanted to see if ChatGPT could do a good job with that. And, and so to attempt to, um, you know, get that, they gave it a prompt and said, hey, read this interview and write a, a, a short, concise history of present illness. And um, what they got back was pretty good, except for some of the hallucinations. <laughs> Nick, um, <laughs> if it weren't for the hallucinations, oh. it would be... It would be super awesome. And so the hallucinations were um, that the uh, the interview didn't say uh, if this was a, uh, I think it didn't say the gender of the patient. It certainly didn't say the age. And so um, most of the histories of present illness that you and I read always do start off with, you know, right. this is a 72-year-old uh, male mm. with the previous history of whatever. Um, and so it said, oh, yes, let's tell you that. So it started <laughs> off with the age and gender of the patient which again was never presented. So that was a no-no. And um, they actually got it a little bit better. So they they went back to the prompt and added something about, you know, do not reference any information that is not in the uh, hmm. in the transcription. Don't make up stuff. And, um, and then they made a, another little tweak. So they tweaked it three times. And uh, by the third time, um, well, they teach it twice to get to the third version. And by the third version, it was, it was pretty good. It did a pretty good job. Um, many doctors, uh, you know, some of the attendings were asked to say, to read uh, these histories and say, hey, was this, in a, was this a human that created this or was this a chatbot? And uh, they could still generally tell, um, not 100%, but I think it was like 65%. 
Um, I'm just going to say they can probably tell because they know that some tired senior resident is or, or junior resident is, is going to produce something that is way more succinct. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that, that might be true. Um, <laughs> I, that's an easy ask. I, I don't think that was a fair question. But anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting. <laughs> Under any circumstances, it, it, was a, it, was, it was quite interesting. This thing was not, you know, this is not a... Uh, um, a, a specific, you know, kind of healthcare AI, it's just kind of off the shelf, the same stuff that you and I have access to. And so it's, you know, it's pretty good that uh, it, it got that far with very little training. I th again, I, I, I do not think that this is on the hype cycle. I think that that the generative AI like this text-based generative AI is really there. Again, as we've said probably for a year now, um, yeah, it makes stuff up. Yeah, it, it gets its facts wrong. So yes, it all should be reviewed uh, before it's uh, trusted. Um, but but still, if it can do the first pass and get it eighty percent of the way there, that's a huge help. Yeah, so I, I'm go I'm going to completely step outside of my lane here and and suggest that what's really interesting about this is that it gives a little bit of insight into one of the challenges that I think we have with these LLMs and AI uh, content generation in understanding how they do it, right? And, you know, everybody says, well, it, it, and you, you even use it, we both do, but I try not to hallucinate, uh, uh, anthropomorphize these devices that are essentially word generators. And what I find interesting about the fact that they pulled out, you know, this is a male uh, age 72 or whatever it was, is it gives me a little bit of a, a peek underneath the covers, and I could be entirely wrong, that says, you know what it's doing? It's saying, I found all of these clinical things and phrases that were linked in some other document somewhere else in the billions of data points and, and so forth. And I see that, oh, and as I look further up the tree, I see it started with this. And I'm just going to pull that up. So it, it helps me understand why it comes up with data that's not really there, because that's the purpose. The other thing that strikes me as you describe this is their reaction, because my reaction to that would have been, hold on a second, why did you do that? And I think that tends to dive off into this deep end of AI interactions where the, the, the system gets angry or, you know, stamps its feet based on some of the things that I've read. And I don't think I, 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 it would be interesting because if you could actually query and say, well, hold on a second, where did you see that? But I suspect it would just make up more stuff because it's it's a little bit like a, a three-year-old being asked, did you take the uh, the last cookie from the jar? And no, no, it wasn't me, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it you know, you can't point out when it makes errors and say things if you're following the chat and say mm. you know, the the gender or the age was never presented. And it generally replies with, oops, let me I see that, let me try that again. Uh, um, and, and then so, comes up with another gender and another age. <laughs> again, you know, I probably. Think, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to say you're wrong. Um, it's, it's, it's. Uh, I, I think oh, that's as, unusual. As, I'm going to take that as a score for this interview. <laughs> the, as we started off with, you know, it's all about the prompts. 
And, um, you know, when you, when they, I think that final modification of the prompt was don't hallucinate things, you know, don't reference things that aren't in the, aren't in the interview, um, be succinct, use clinically appropriate terms. Uh, cause some of those, it would, you know, veer off into using, um, non-clinically specific terms that, and that's a clear giveaway that, uh, you know, a doctor's not done this. Right. So, but, uh, it did, it improved quickly. And, and I think once we get those prompts done, um, you, that you, you're getting, you know, maybe you're starting with nothing at, at 80%. You can get to a good 95% accurate and, and fast. Um, and, you know, then the question is, well, are you losing something by not starting from scratch? Are you, uh, are doctors going to lose something because they don't have the, they start to lose the ability to generate these things in their heads. And all they're really doing is approving something that the, you know, that an AI has created. Are, are we, are we creating a generation of physicians that will be in big trouble if that tool is gone? So that sounds very much like the argument I hear repeatedly around automated flying, you know, the, um, uh, the, the pilots losing the skill set, particularly with the new capabilities that are emerging where, you know, their auto land is now available in a lot of places. It requires a lot of technology and, you know, still supervised, but they lose the touch. I could tell you, I don't know about you, but I've certainly been on some planes where I think, whoa, he hasn't landed that thing in a while. Because <laughs> we really come down, you know, pretty hard and it's not wind or anything, but, um, you know, huge respect. And I think they've addressed that by continuing so they don't just do it. I think that's one of the key things. And, you know, the, the other thing that sort of strikes me through all of this is, Everybody's listening to this or, or looking at this technology and going, ah, well, we don't need doctors. And that's not what this says to me. It says, no, we really do, but we can make them much, much more efficient to generate the content that's necessary and to be succinct. Oh, and by the way, I think you can create two pieces of content from that same interview one that's dedicated to the clinical profession. And yeah, we abbreviate and use all these terms because it gives a really succinct, you know, it used to be the four by six or whatever cards that we used to write on. We could really get it in. I think you and I have talked about this. I remember you talking about one of your records and it was like two lines and <laughs> there was a full clinical history in there. And it, it does, it works. I read stuff and, you know, go, oh yeah, I get all that and some of the annotations. But then you also generate something that, is equal to, but is in, you know, a, a easy to understand, comprehensible for the general public who don't have that understanding, that can then be part of this sort of open notes forum that you and I, I think, are both big fans of. So this is, to me, this is hugely exciting and brilliantly done because they didn't take real data and real patients and put it in because, of course, I feel like that might be going on. I, I know if I was working in this space and I was there and I know it's not right, I'm not advocating it, but I just know high pressure time, you know, it, it produces decent content. And as long as you don't just take it and dump it in and use it as a sort of starting point, that's cool. The problem is the private information and we don't want to have that shared. Don't know about you, but my prompts have changed when you log into the system now. It says, warning, you know, we're looking at this, we're checking, don't put any private, you know, so they, they've really sort of jumped on that. I guess we need private instances. Maybe there's a better t version of this, but to me, it's really exciting. 
No, it, it is exciting. And um, I have absolutely uploaded, I think I mentioned this on a previous show, I've uploaded yeah. patient information and I don't care who knows about it because it's my patient information. Right. And um, and so if anyone is reading about, you know, a pediatrician that is a George <laughs> Clooney lookalike, like that's probably based on the information that I that I've uploaded. George Clooney? Everyone Are says you it. kidding Dr. me? Nick, it's not just me. Everyone <laughs> says it. Um, you know, another another. Yeah. So I, I don't think anyone's talking about getting rid of physicians. Um, I think we're talking about making physicians more efficient. Also, kind of adding expertise to physicians that might be outside their their areas. And I, mm. you know, I think of a specific, I think of when I, uh, you know, as a pediatrician, I, I learned many things that uh, focus on kids and are that are rarely seen. But when they're seen, you never want to miss them, even though they're very uncommon. Right. And a good example of that, uh, I'm just going to give this uh, rather odd um, uh, reference. I remember being a second year resident and um, we were doing board review with the chief resident. So there's, you know, 30 of us in a room and they put up a slide and it's a, it was a picture of a, a, a young child and the, um, uh, without clothes on face down and there's this big rash all over, um, you know, the lower back and the buttocks and the upper legs. And, you know, we're, we're kind of just looking and, and the question of course was what, what's causing this rash. Right. And uh, this, the senior resident said, listen, uh, I'll give you a little hint. Uh, any rash of the buttocks uh, on your board exam is Henoch Schoenlein purpura until proven otherwise. Um, and 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 that's that was a, a key thing because you don't generally see that kind of a rash, right. that kind of a, a, a distribution. And you know, I certainly got that because I did a pediatric residency, but family medicine doctors often don't mm -hmm. get that much pediatrics because they're doing a lot of other things. And certainly adults aren't going to get that kind of a uh, internist. I'm sorry, adult specialists are not going to get that kind. of. So, you know, when those words are maybe said during a transcript of, well, the, you know, the rash started on the butt or described it, what those words to me are going to jump out as an expert and say, ah, I have to think about this weird thing called HSP that I don't normally see that commonly. Um, but to others that might, that's where the, I think the, some of this technology can really come in because it is quite good when you're asking it to give, you know, what are some of the diagnoses I should think about that I don't normally think about? Um, it, it will make some suggestions like that. Yeah, I, I, I think a hundred percent. And, you know, we, we sure, short code that to zebra hunting. I think that's the, the thing that the clinicians know, understand, you know, when you hear hooves, think zebras, not horses, you know, find the rarities. Um, and, you know, again, one of the great opportunities um, that, you know, this represents to extend our capabilities as we become more and more specialized. For those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today, as I am each and every month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Craig Joseph. He's the Chief Medical Officer at Nordic Consulting Partners. We're news you can use for this past month. We, of course, spent a fair amount of time on ChatGPT and uh, I think a great piece of research demonstrating the value proposition um, done in a, I think, very clever way uh, with good detail um, you know, diving into. And, you know, we both concur in this particular area, and I'll sort of re-emphasize it. You know, the prompt engineer or prompt whisperer is going to be a critical skill set uh, going forward. It doesn't matter where you work, as a clinician, 
um, engineer, programmer, you name it. I think it's it's absolutely uh, key to all of that. So um, all good news. Um, let's move on to some other things uh, whilst we still have a bit of time. Uh, there was a uh, publication in Nature talking about digital health for aging populations. We are seeing more and more uh, folks trying to push away from the hospital. Um, I know we're still building them. That still surprises me when I see this, but um, w w nobody really wants to spend time there. I know I don't. Um, I, and, you know, to be clear, I, 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 they're essential and important, but, you know, from an aging standpoint, we want to stay out of them as much as possible and use them for the very specific purposes. But how do we support that activity? And, you know, the reality is that there's all these technologies and the wearables and the various digital innovations that have this enormous potential to drive independence. But are we using it correctly? Do we have the right uh, pieces that are in place? Is the, you know, what categorization? I think we've established at this point um, that, you know, they have to be clinically valid. Um, I know I certainly in the past have sort of not dismissed it, but discounted it and said, you know, if you're just getting some measure, but I, I've, I've seen too many of these measures where I go, oh my God, really? That's, I, I had a blood pressure cuff to be clear, one of those, you know, cheapos that I bought and I, it, I was doing really well and I'm thinking, oh, this is really cool. And then, I, I think it might have been my um, my daughter, who's uh, an emergency room physician, and she was. I mean, you should check this properly. And I, we got my old sphygmomanometer out, and hell, it was way way off. So I'm super careful with it. So, you know, there's those elements. I think there's fantastic technology. I've used a CGM. Don't know about you, but it, you know, I use it. It's informative. I don't have it on all the time, but um, you know, and I have a ring that's tracking everything. It's been fantastic. I'm, you know, recovering from uh, some uh, procedures that were done. I've seen the sort of steady progression of sleep and the improvements. How do we get all this reconciled? What are your thoughts around all of that? And, you know, indeed the paper. It, it's good, Nick. No, um, I was trying to think of something sarcastic to say because uh, you're asking these very big questions to which there are no easy answers. I think, uh, firstly, you know, we have to acknowledge uh, that uh, many of us stereotype the elderly as being tech phobic, right? They don't, mm. they don't understand. They don't want to be around. It's too confusing, and they'd rather, you know, kind of stick with their old ways. And my experience, and I think the experience of many, is that that is not the case. It's often the opposite of that. Um, in fact, my, my mother-in-law got, uh, uh, kicked off Facebook. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what she did to do that, uh, but it got kicked off Facebook. And, you know, uh, I called her recently on her birthday and, uh, um, I said, she said, you know, I don't know how to get back on. I don't know what to do. And, and I said, well, I, let me take a, uh, I'll take a, you know, at least one stab at trying to get it better. And she goes, she said to me, that's the best birthday present I've had in a long time. And I, <laughs> and I said, well, I don't even know if I'll be able to get it to work. And she, well, just someone trying. My point being that that technology, that was just very kind of low, low tech at this point, um, is, is something that she really relies on and likes. And, and I think a lot of these things, you know, I'm looking at one of the pictures from that article and, you know, it, it shows 
some wearables that are really not like we're not talking about full time getting your blood pressure checked every two minutes like when you're in the hospital. But, hey, are you moving around enough? Like, right. do we because if you've fallen, maybe we could detect that fall um, either via a camera or something that you have on you. Uh, even your watch can tell us. So if you know, have you taken a, a violent fall? Are you uh, are you moving the way you typically would? Yep. Um, those kinds of things. And so, you know, a, a wearable is not just a watch or, or a ring. It can be shoes or socks or, um, you know, uh, a motion detector that's out there. And so, yeah, there's lots of things to, to both kind of find problems before they be, find little problems before they become big problems. And, and also to let you, I think, as you started off this conversation, hey, why do you need to be in the hospital? Or, or why do you need to be in a in a residential care facility? No one, as you mentioned, no one wants to be in those places generally. And um, even if they're great, you still don't want to be there. You want to be in your home and, and right. anything we can do to kind of get you there um, with the same or, or even better uh, uh, quality outcomes would be is well appreciated. I, I click my red heels all the time. There's no place like home. I, I it's it's and you know having had uh, you know my intersection with the um, facilities and you know in a space that I actually performed the procedures involved uh, where it was a 15 day stay and I was out same day was just and it was I, I could not have been more grateful to be at home. And I was doing more work. I'll, I'll, just to be clear, I was hooked up to a monitor, but they got tired of the beep. Or actually, I got tired of the beep beep, so they just unplugged it. <laughs> so what was the point? Whereas I've got, you know, constant monitoring. I'm really excited by sort of continuous blood pressure. I, I think the important point you brought out there that's, you know, worth highlighting is this, you know, designed for the purpose and, you know, with the elderly in mind, they're absolutely not technophobic. My mother was the same when she was alive. She was absolutely, she jumped on this stuff. She, the iPhone and Siri, by the way, was a huge positive for her. Um, you know, it, 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 it achieves so many things. And a lot of it, you know, one of the simplest things I learned around that time was, you know, those little pens with the little rubber thingamy bob to touch the screen proved to be a huge positive for interacting with the screens because she couldn't do it very well with a finger, didn't have the dexterity, but you put it in a pen and suddenly it was much, much easier. Simple thing, but, you know, give her that. And then suddenly she was, I think she would have had a watch if she'd been around for that period of time. So anyway, um, let's talk briefly, if we can, about the epic research. They said, uh, note bloat. So, um, you know, uh, I, you and I have seen that. That's a, like a huge problem. Copy forward epics. Uh, I, I think we both love the epic research. Lots of data to sort of dive into and people are doing some interesting things. Any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think um, uh, you mentioned open notes before. That's the movement to allow uh, patients to see their progress notes, be it inpatient or outpatient, make it easy to do over the internet through the patient portal. And um, when people are looking at them, they're seeing these these tomes, these four, five, six page uh, notes. When typically, when we wrote them, they were maybe seven, eight, nine, ten lines. And and uh, why has that happened? There's multiple reasons, but one of the main reasons was that there were rules in the United States about how you got paid to prove the work that you were doing. You had to jump through hoops. You had to check boxes. You had to do lots of things. And and uh, physicians have become used to writing these big things. And then two years ago, CMS, the 
the organization that's responsible for some of these rules, said, you know what, we're going to make it a lot easier. And they did. And they they really changed the focus. Uh, uh, so it's a lot less of those boxes that you have to check and words that you don't really need that don't clinically say anything. And uh, we were all very excited because we're like, okay, now we're going to get notes back to succinct and the way they were when we were on paper. And um, Epic's research, this is a, <laughs> you know, they, they were able to look at um, – 1.7 billion clinical notes. That's B. Wow. That's B, like Bravo. One, wow. 1.7 <laughs> clinical, 1.7 billion progress notes in their electronic health records of their customers, and uh, did research on those and found that well, the the actually the notes didn't get shorter in that time frame in the last two years. They actually got eight percent longer. Oh God. <laughs> um, so that's not good. But they did find, though, that um, on average, uh, there was an 11% decrease in the amount of time doctors took to write the notes. So I'm not sure why that is. Um, oh, come on. Copy forward or co- whatever you want to no, call it. No, but they've it. been able to do that for, four, for, for years and years. This is in the last two years. Why did it get faster? But uh, under any circumstance, right. I'm not sure. Uh, it's, so, so they're spending less time, but I'm not sure we're producing a more a higher quality product. But um, again, this is, you know, it's, it's quite interesting because nor we would never be able to do a study with right. when we said, you know, when you said you're going to look at a billion notes. Um, like that's insane, and it's, and they're it able is. to do it's it. It's really cool. I, yeah, and you know, love love the fact that it's being published. People can see this. I think you know, great stuff. Unfortunately, as we do each and every week, we've run out of time. Um, I, I, always a great conversation. Always good to catch up. Uh, just remains for me to thank you, Craig, for uh, joining me on the show. Craig, thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure. I can't wait till next month. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. 